this Monday evening. Uh, we have a very special guest for you tonight. Um, but as usual, we have my co-hosts, uh, Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And Mark Canty. Evening. And our special guest tonight from Steamforge Games, Truen Matthews. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. Right, so Shruin, who are you? What do you do? What's your thing? That's a big question to start. <laughs> We're all about the big questions. Uh, you are, aren't you? Uh, well, um, I'm Sherwin Matthews. Uh, I am lead designer for Steamforge Games. Uh, and I guess you've got lovely people having me here today to talk about Dark Souls, amongst other things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't it, I mean, we looked at your bio... Um, and it is a hit list of loads of games. Could you just how did you get started in developing? Actually, no. Games? Give us the list of your games first. Give give us your give us your <laughs> give us your CV. Give us your gaming CV. Oh, <laughs> sell myself to you. Okay, yeah, sell us. Uh, so I've been lucky enough to work on uh, Resident Evil, uh, all three of our Resident Evil games. So Resident Evil, Resident Evil Two, Resident Evil Three. Um, I've worked on. Going back into our well, our own IP stuff, uh, Guildhall, God Tier, and then Bardsong. I've worked on Horizon Zero Dawn, Monster Hunter World, uh, Gears of War, Dark Souls, uh, this new thing called Elden Ring, uh, which is coming What's out. That? Well, that's a very big question again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of those. Uh, I think that's more or less it. I worked on Peaky Blinders, Shadow Games. There's quite a few. Um, but it's, there's, there's a point I think I realized, uh, when I first started looking at the bio, I realized through sheer didn't of fortune or right place, right time. I think I've worked on most of our games in some capacity and obviously as the lead designer I've, since that's only really, you know, deepened. So. so, so how did you, yeah. How did you start off, um, designing games? How, how did this all come about? So you know, it's an interesting question. When I first started work for Steamforge Games, I was lead writer. Um, so nothing really too much to do with uh, game design at all. And uh, slightly slightly long-winded story, you've got the pan width for it. Um, so so I, um, I was president of our local gaming club um, a thousand years ago when I was young. And <laughs> I... I met this guy at the club. He just moved back into the area. He came down one weekend to play games. And I kind of bounced up to him and introduced myself, being the good club resident I was. And that's where I met this guy called Matt Hart, uh, who you would now know as creative director for Steamforge Games. And I just chatted to him about various different bits. We, you know, you know we, uh, we got on whatever else. And then, you know, skip forward a couple of weeks, and he's been coming to the club a few times. And I was just chatting to him, and he said, oh, I'm making a game. I'm like, that's interesting. He's like, yeah, it's going to kickstart. It's going to kickstart in a couple of months. It's called Guild Ball. And I went, okay, that's interesting. And we had a quick chat about what that was. And I sort of, you know, at the time I'd written a few bits and pieces that got into some short story anthologies and a couple of bits for websites and things. I sort of said, well, you know, I'm quite a big fan of like game lore and stuff like that. Do you have anyone to write any of your story stuff yet? Not really thinking in any sense of the words of like, a, you know, I could get a writing gig out of this, you know, in terms of any money or anything more so much just being helpful to someone and yeah sure you know if you're looking for anyone to write some story stuff i'm happy to help out let me know and uh, so we had a quick drink upstairs at the bar and then basically we sort of you know i asked him about some of his favorite stories and stuff and he kind of sat down with me and said yep i like joe abercrombie i like some of these different ideas here this is kind of the theme i want in this do you reckon you can have a shot i'm not sure give it to me so i went away 
and I, I wrote a short story for him. It's only about four pages of A4 big. It's called Match Day. And then um, I came back to him a week later and I gave it to him and he read it and he basically went, this is amazing. I want you to write everything. Oh, and I'm like, no I'm like, okay, that's cool. Let's do that. So <laughs> at that point, I kind of wrote a few bits and pieces more. Um, anyway, skip forward a few years and uh, I'm now full-time employed for the company because I was around... Uh, I was freelance for quite a long while when Gilball was, uh, sorry, when, well, Steve Forge and Gilball was just first starting out. And then around about the point where Steamforge grew into a space where it could start to employ full-time employees um, was the bit where I came on along with some of the other, you know, more long-term staff. And I went into full writing mode. Um, and then again, I'll, uh, I'll segue nicely to about a year and a half on from there. And Matt starts talking to me about this new game he's going to make. And he invites me to this thing called a design week, which is where the whole design development team go away and sequester themselves in what would now be an Airbnb, uh, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and just really drill into playing games, designing, focusing on stuff, talking about strategies and all sorts of different bits and pieces. And so it says to me, I want you to come to this one. I'm like, That's weird. But sure, why not? You know, I could happily go away for a week and have some fun, you know, hanging out with designers. I know all of them anyway. So let's do that. And on the drive up, he's like, I'm making this new game, and I think you're really going to like it, and I want you to work on it with me. I'm like, sure, what's the game? He's like, it's called Resident Evil. And at that point, my mind, as a Resident Evil fan, because I am... Pleasure I'm, overload. I, yeah, I'm, I'm possibly the biggest Resident Evil geek you will ever speak to in your entire life. So, Is that where we had to stop the car and pull over so you can see in the corner and start rocking? Joe, <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that. We were talking about it. I was like, immediately, I was just so excited. I'm like, right, how are we going to make this? What's this game going to be? You have to literally kill me to stop me working on this game with you. <laughs> and he, he he chuckles to remember this story. He tells me back now. At one point, when we were talking about how to do bits and pieces, when we first found upon the ammo dials that we use in Resident Evil, and I was like, that's so perfect. We should do that. And I was embarrassingly so excited my, my feet started randomly stamping uh in the footwell because <laughs> i was literally that excited about how good the idea was and how much it would resonate with the audience um so that's my embarrassing moment over um but anyway yeah so so it kind of from there uh, matt and i started working on various different bits and pieces so went away obviously made resident evil 2 um and at that point started working on design team bits and pieces and ever since then it's really sort of grown up from there so i've kind of you know been along for you know, early stage design for lots of bits and bits and pieces. Uh, you know, obviously taken several games from you know conception all the way through to fulfillment and sort of stuff, and then beyond. And yeah, it's just kind of grown from there, really. Is there, it's um, sorry, Tom. Is there is there any sort of mechanics or anything that you've you're you're especially proud of that, that you came up with? As I mean, <laughs> my my absolute. Favorite games we've ever worked on have been Resident Evil. For I'm, I'm, they're very much a passion project for me. And I think, I mean, obviously, all of the games we work on are all my children. You're asking me to choose my favorite there. But no, I'm not um, saying I'm like, is there a mechanic? Is there something yeah, yeah, in a yeah, game? Yeah. Just a single thing that you went, that's a really think, good idea. Well, the aforementioned ammo dials, obviously. But I think the the one that I think, uh, if if I had to look back on anything that we've done, um, that's such a simple mechanic, uh, but works so very, very well probably has to be the tension deck for resident evil um if, if you're not familiar with the game it's a very simple thing where every single scenario that you play in resident evil has a has a pre-constructed deck um or at least used to anyway now it's evolved but you have a pre-constructed deck which has a certain number of green cards which mean you draw one at the end of every turn 
and green cards mean everything is safe have a little bit of flavor text that basically says yep you're in a zombie infested hellhole you're probably not gonna live very long uh you have a yellow card which gives you a difficult decision to make yeah it might be there's zombies outside you can hear them what do you want to do um, if you make too much noise they'll come to get you and then you have red cards which are your jump scares and that's when like zombies appear and <laughs> smash through a window and eat your face and what's amazingly subtle about this deck is that it's a really simple mechanic we have a deck of cards and you just draw from it every turn but the application of how we use it in terms of the flavor text instead of anything else is that players really get scared of that deck when they play the game because they know every time they draw a green card they've still got some creepy language to read on it and at the same time they're like oh yeah we're safe but that means the next cards are that much closer now because there's you know keep on drawing these green cards and they're just going to get worse because we know the bad ones are in there and there's lots of connective tissue we can make in terms of the actual story on there for example um one of the cards when matt and i were doing a resident Evil playthrough once uh, we had a card which basically said you know the, the windows rattle you can hear dogs howling outside you know better keep moving three cards later like matt draws the red card that spawns zombie dogs that smash through a window to come and get him and he's like and there's the dogs and on the like, That's incredible. how did you make that happen i'm like well actually it's just you know you know absolute luck but the paradise there's small, small bits and pieces that you kind of lead into that um and obviously since then for resident Evil 3 we introduced this idea that actually that deck evolves so rather than setting up a new deck every time that deck now evolves so there's different there's some cards where they have one effective if you're early in the campaign and then as you go through they get worse so the, the cards get more dangerous there's cards that you can put into that deck from decisions you make so if you'll pass the door and there's like lots of zombie you know like you hear zombie groans from outside and the door's rattling on its hinges if you don't open it and you sort of sneak past then you grab the zombie horde but a card and shuffle that into the deck because the game is learning how you play and what you do and thus working around you to come and get you and um yeah there's lots of stuff like that so i'll go with that yeah, it feels like the, the resident evil games are very story driven resident evil is a very narrative i mean it's funny enough i was having this conversation with someone earlier today resident evil i think is a very much cinematic experience playing it it's it's something where i mean i don't know if you guys are familiar with the with the actual games themselves the video games but oh yeah lo lots about them is kind of those jump scares or it is cutscenes. it is something where you know it throws you into these moments of sort of cinematic action i you've got to get from point a to point b and something's crashing through a window and zombies are chasing after you or or you know you're kind of creeping around because you don't want to alert the tyrant that's stalking around the police station looking for you stuff like that all of those moments tend to be something that could quite happily fit into a movie and i think as a result the resident evil video uh, resident evil board games that we've made have to reflect that and that's really what we've drilled into for those games to try and really make them stand out because that's part of what sort of slightly setting into more design territory now but whenever you make any game for anything you have to think about what's the core dna of what it is that we want to represent with this what's the like for resident evil what what makes playing resident evil different to playing you know any other zombie survival game because there's a whole bunch of them out there well, what is it that what is it that screams Resident Evil about this? Is it zombie dogs crashing through the window? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone remembers that, right? But is it is it conserving ammo? Is it not having enough resources to survive? Is it that sense of creeping dread? Is it you're just gunning down every zombie in sight? I mean, some of those are true. Some of those may not be true. It's obviously subjective, but it's thinking about how do you make it so that someone can sit down, play this, and go, "I recognise this game. This is the game that I that I really like." You know, and this game is speaking to me because it does the same things. Even if you're not using the same 
even if you're not using exactly the same thing, as in you're not playing on a PlayStation, you have a remote control, uh, you know, to, to steer your thing, you, you can still emulate a lot of those feelings just with cardboard and dice and so on, just by working out the best way to make those feelings sort of come to the surface in a player. How do As you... opposed to the classic sort of, I'll just wedge, take a game that I already have and change the names on the cards. Right, yeah. So, <laughs> no, it's, it's true. One of the things we never, ever want to do, and we've had many conversations about this, we never, and we call it, I don't think it's the, it's definitely not an industry term because it means something else, but internally we call that white boxing and we never do that. Like, whenever we sit down to do anything, we always go, well, the, the core DNA question is always our first starting point. What's the core DNA of the thing that we're making? Even, you know, for a licensed product, that's very straightforward because you can look at what that is and go, okay, so, you know, Monster Hunter, it's about hunting huge monsters through the wilds and then when you fire them, breaking parts off and, you know, combos and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, Resident Evil, it's creeping dread. It's not knowing if you've got enough ammo to deal with what's around the corner and making difficult decisions and so on. Um, if it's your own IP, it's something where you look at it and go, what do we want players to, players to feel? What's the what's the type of game we're making? If we think about Bardsong, our dungeon crawler, for example, what's the thing we want to do? Well, loads of people love Warhammer Quest, so that's a good starting point. Loads of people love Choose Your Own Adventure books, so Leah, that's another good starting point. You have D&D, we all love D&D. Okay, great, so let's mesh them together and see what it looks like. And at that point, you start to think about as you start to sort of shape that out and you start to go down different design decisions and so on, you always have to come back to that. If you establish those um, that core DNA early, you can always come back to that and say, great, have we strayed too far from this? Yes, no. If yes, okay, do we need to walk it back or actually do we kind of like that new direction and then work it out from there? And once you've got those things, it makes it not easy to design a game, but it's a really good structure to sort of progress onwards. Um. So... Resident Evil is a, a game against the game, so it's it's cooperative. It's oh. it's cooperative. Yep. Uh, uh, is that sort of because um, Dark Souls is the same? Um, are those the sort of games that you sort of kind of ear towards games where it's cooperative against the board game, or um, is that just how it has been? It's a couple of things. I mean, my preference is always to make a cooperative game. I think um, I come from a, a competitive miniatures background. Um, but I think the the thing that always to me when you're playing a board game and some RPGs that kind of feels like it sucks a little bit is one player has to lose and you know that person will be walking away from that particular you know from that particular session going oh it was really cool but ultimately I didn't get to win it kind of you know it kind of sucked whereas if everyone's playing together then that's good because everyone is part of the same team everyone's sort of working towards the same goal and everyone walks away if you succeed. Everyone gets to join in the sort of yeah the high and the sort of the highs and the lows of that experience when you're all sitting around going, "Come on, you could yeah, go on, Pete, you can do this." You know, like you can you can make that dice wrong, get out of that area there, and then you know next turn, oh Mark, you know up to you, yeah whatever, yeah that sort of stuff. <laughs> everyone kind of gets to feel that same pressure, that same tension, that same enjoyment coming through from it, and I think that's very important because obviously when you're sitting there looking at all the people around the table. You always want everyone to enjoy themselves. You want everyone to leave that table going, that was amazing. I love that. And cooperative games is a really straightforward way to do that because everyone's in it together. And you know, part of the best thing about playing a lot of board games is when people are sitting around the table talking about what's the next move? How do we do this? I, I, I love that bit where that happens. All that stuff that is 
not part of the rules, but it's just as much gameplay as part of actually rolling dice and moving, you know, moving models around everything else. Is when people are strategizing about how to best, you know, progress. That for me is a really key important reason for why we play tabletop games versus sitting there playing Call of Duty or whatever else. <laughs> yeah, that was going to lead on to my other question. How do you persuade somebody? Like for myself, I'm not a massive fan of against board game games. Um, I mm. kind of like there being like dungeon crawlers i like descent and things like that i like having that one guy who's there who he might not win the game but he's there to basically mm. fuck with you make you sort of <laughs> basically he's there to be the human brain to think outside the box and make things slightly more challenging for you how mm. do you make your games engaging knowing that obviously you don't there's not a human being it's against the game and therefore using cards and things like that. how do you how do you sort of get around that sort of person like me he's just like ah, I, I don't know because i kind of like having somebody mess with me how do you how do you get me into a game like that well i can, I can stick with resident evil because the aforementioned tension deck is a really good way of doing that because that is a deck where ultimately it does screw with you it does kind of give you all these different events that kind of say hey you can't go and do this thing you really want to or if you do there's a big risk attached to it or whatever else so that is almost a, that I mean, the attention deck originally came out because when we first designed Resident Evil, the very first initial version we did of it um, actually did have a DM. Um, and the idea was the DM is exactly what you've just described. Someone sitting there going, I've, I'm the zombie player and I control all of the zombies. So that corpse you just walked past, I can make it stand up. This idea of, you know, like I can just drop in enemies through a window whenever suits me. And, you know, you never know when I'm going to ha- hit you with that. But one of the things I talked to Matt about when we originally started working on this was, yeah, that's cool, but I think a lot of people are going to be coming to this from a video game background where they don't, you know, their experience of board games is Monopoly at most. And a lot of them are used to playing the heroes. They're playing characters that don't die and they don't get to be the bad guy. And, you know, they therefore their experience is, yeah, you don't want someone to go and turn up and go, oh God, I've got to be the one who, one, one knows all the rules and two, ultimately loses. That's not a <laughs> good feeling for those, but that person. So let's make it into... Let's make this in, let's automate that DM role. And that's exactly what we're talking about now. So the tension deck is a really good example of that, where it kind of automated the sort of decisions that, you know, that a player could make to screw with you. Because guess what? That deck works nine times out of 10. That deck will do the thing you really don't want it to do when it, when it needs to, you know, when you really don't need it to happen. Um, yeah, we have lots of stuff like, you know, zombie corpses do just randomly stand up when you do actions on them through dice rolls and so on. Um, and it's a case of scenario design. You put corpses in places where players will have to walk over them more often than not. Don't put them in a corner where they can be ignored. Put them somewhere where, oh, look, there's an item over there, but there's a corpse laying on top of it. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, oh, there's a door there. Open the door. Oh, what? There's a corpse on the opposite side. Now I have to tiptoe over it because otherwise it might stand up and bite me. Yeah, <laughs> do, do things with your encounter tables that force players to make difficult decisions. And you can automate a lot of what that feeling is. And it's the same with... It's the same with something like Dark Souls to sort of you know go on to that, which is it's about enemy AIs. It's about something where we can we can build um, enemy AI to a degree to a certain sophisticated degree now, depending on which one of our games you're looking at, where players can start to predict you know how they're going to work. Um, they can sort of go for a basic enemy like oh that guy's going to walk towards me and try and stab me or whatever else, but then you can introduce random events that change how that AI works. So it could be something where there's a behavior deck and you don't know what it's going to do every turn so you draw that card and then look at it and see what's happening. Or it could be like you have in Bard Song where there's certain cards that you draw that just completely switch up the, the enemy AI and suddenly now they're going to go do something else and you can't predict them anymore. 
So there's lots of different bits and pieces, lots of levers we can pull to create that effect. So that way you still get to have that um, PvP feeling, but actually you're playing the game. Yeah, there's one game, um, the betrayal mechanics in Betrayal at the House on the Hill, where it starts out as collaborative, but then the betrayal happens, and then one of the players becomes the betrayer, and mm-hmm. then up to the other remaining players to kind of uh, work together to defeat yeah, it's like, it's like Nemesis. Nemesis has that sort of, yeah. kind of mechanic where it's cooperative, and but somebody might betray to a you. point. Yeah, oh. then and that complete. Yeah, and that's. But as you say, when you're all working together as a team, like at the end of the game, when you finished the game and you succeeded, there is you know there's jubilation, a shared enjoyment of the fact you've you've achieved it, you completed the objectives. But when it's more competitive, and then one player wins, as well, great, yeah, you won. Then there's the flip side I've seen that um, some tabletop games are starting to pick up on that. For example, I've started, I've not played for a little bit, I've been playing a lot of other stuff, but Stargrave um, has come out and the original book was mostly around the multiplayer experience, but with the scenarios they've been bringing out, the extension books, they have got um, one player options in them to help you to drive in the same way as you're talking about with an AI deck effectively. Um, with um, tables and decks to to drive the behaviours of the enemy. Um, one of them's almost um, like his take on Space Hulk with, um, mm. or Alien, because it has the blips and things like that. And I see that crossbreeding going backwards and forwards, because I, I knew, I, first time I ran into that sort of thing was playing Curse City with some friends. Where obviously you're playing, it's a game. I'm, I, I'm um, one of the founder members, and I'm now the GM, and I was the chairman for a while of our local gaming club so i try to be acquainted with as much as much as i can and i have seen that coming up more and more with some of the games you do have games like um descent does it um there was a game that came out um called erun on kickstarter recently which is quite good where the dungeon master or the person who's fucking with people can level up as well like he isn't just there to sort of like he is there to sort of kind of dm and in descent especially i don't think you're going to ever win but you get that sort of incentive to play because your character as the dungeon master gets to level up and he gets bonuses and stuff and he he can make things slightly harder for other players and stuff and And that's cool that's cool i mean one of the things yeah i mean if you're going to look at classic classic sort of uh, RPG games. One of the part, one of the things that I think is a common misconception with a lot of people is they think the DM is our enemy. We're trying yeah. to beat the DM. And mm-hmm. It's simply not true. The DM is a player, much like you, is having fun playing. Or, yeah, they're play, having fun playing the game. It doesn't matter whether that's somebody who's ultimately controlling the monsters, because ultimately they're enjoying the the bit where you get to experience the story, where you go through and you you blast through and you basically. Hey, you know, this is the story that I've built or I know everything about and I'm sort of slowly unveiling it to you. It's a certain type of player who enjoys being that DM role doing that stuff. But if you get it right and you have the right person, then it's fantastic. And that could be part of it. It normally gets undone because some players see the opportunity to go, oh, yes, but if I take this particular character, that will really screw with them and ruin their gaming experience. And that's just not what you should be doing so leveling them up is a really fun idea because at that point well, what's what what's one of the best things about you know if you're looking at traditional sort of dm uh, traditional you know D or whatever else you know rpg experiences it is that sense of i could level myself up cool what can i do because if i take this trait or this ability or i take this gear then that means you know this amazing combination of stuff can happen we'll give that to a dm and suddenly that's that's that part of experience unlocked for them which is really cool so 
I think when it comes to sort of D and D, um, like like we we play a D and D campaign which we've been doing for the last two two years now, I think, mm. and it's very much a case of I I'm not there to try and beat them. I'm trying to tell a story. Yeah. well they're telling their own story and i'm basically <laughs> filling it trying to fill in the gaps right as they go along sort of thing um and so i have no mm. real i have no real <laughs> sort of um there's there's no sort of bother about me sort of kind of wanting things um to people to die and stuff like that because i want the story to carry on and for me the the bonus is the story but i can see sort of in certain board games if you're playing a board game it's going to take three or four hours and stuff you kind of want to have i understand why you would everybody wants to be a part of that game everybody wants to be a winner and in some way shape or form um so i i yeah i understand that um just side note how annoying is it as a dm when your players basically sit there and go through that carefully constructed thing that you've just built and that oh yeah the the information you need is here and here and here and they go cool we're not going there we're just going to wander off this i wonder how that happens hey guys all the Gee, time. That, that <laughs> sounds like three times a week, mostly probably in that game. We started off. Uh, we started off where I was writing down like loads of stuff. I was having really in-depth little things going on, and they would just go in the completely opposite direction, and I couldn't even shoehorn it in because it was completely. Or they they outsmart me in a certain way and sort of kind of do something completely different, <laughs> and it just killed everything. So I just got the point now where they write their story. And I try my best to keep up, and then that's pretty much it. So I've got I've got a I've got a vague idea of what's happening at the start, in the middle, and the end. I've got an idea of where things should go, and I just let I just let them have free reign. And then basically, if that happens, like last time we played, I had this. It's like ah, I'm gonna they're gonna split up because I know they're idiots, and they're just gonna go in and do what they always do, and they're gonna run round and they're gonna split up, and I can trap them here and stuff, and they'll be hilarious. So I dropped the rock um, between them and stuff, thinking, aha, I've split the party now and stuff. This is going to be good fun because they're going to have to work their way out of this. And then the, the wizard turns around and goes, uh, so was that, is that rock sort of connected to the to the wall and stuff? And I was like, no, it's just a, this is a big rock. And he went, okay, I shrink the rock. And I was like, no, <laughs> no. And I was like, and I couldn't think of a good reason why they couldn't do it. So they just, He tried. Yeah. He really tried. <laughs> they just shrank the rock, moved it out of the way and carried on. And I was like, because yeah, then you're in the territory if you go well it just doesn't work and suddenly it's a magic rock and now it needs more investigation right yeah, yeah. it's just like, i just let them yeah. do it so it's just one of those things or the barbarian like... beats it to death and it has to cry yeah. <laughs> not looking at anyone in particular who happens to play the barbarian yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's quite amusing because they get themselves in so much trouble all the time and it's just amusing to get the kind of let's let them do it and stuff you know it's just it's just amusing um anyway so uh you were talking about uh dark souls which is it's oh. is it a re-release uh that's sort of so tomb of giants and painted worlds are new core sets for dark souls so we're what i think six years on now yeah uh for dark souls since the kickstarts were thereabouts um and forgive me depending on obviously when this goes out and uh and also when someone listens to it, i guess but um but yeah we're a bit of time off from since dark souls came out and something we wanted to do was revisit the rule set because we know that we have an awesome community out there who who've been playing this thing for years and years and they've come up with lots of different ideas about you know lots of different homebrew ideas which really kind of drill into what the game is and kind of you know 
when I talked about the core DNA earlier, uh, that's an entirely subjective thing to everybody. You know, some people play the game and really like one aspect. Some people play the game and like another aspect and so on. And it's something where there's lots of homebrew out there where people have just sort of applied their own house rules to things and, and all sorts of small adjustments here and there to kind of get it close to what that experience is. And, you know, it's something where any rule system after you know that much period of time you always want to look at it even i mean some games you literally make them and then immediately sit there and go if i'd had time i would have put in this thing here or this thing here because that's just how the world works so it's something where we thought the time was nice to have a look at what those homebrew some of those homebrew rules were and also revisit the rule set see if there's anything we could clear up anything you know we could make a bit clearer in the rule book in terms of it's a gray area something like that and then kind of incorporate some of those together to basically make a sort of version two, as it were. Now, it's got to be stressed. It's not like a second edition where it's brand new stuff and it's blasted through all the other stuff. And that's now completely invalidated. One of the key things we wanted to do with this was we didn't we, uh, we know that we have an audience out there. It's incredibly engaged what their stuff is. And we didn't want to say to these, you know, to, to, to them, you can't use the old stuff you bought now because it's all just kind of like, you know lying across it you know the new rule set is here it's incompatible with it we want it to be something where it's always backwards thinking so as a result we carefully created the rules in a way that anything we've introduced in the sort of revised rule set is something that's completely backwards compatible so you know it changes the amount of stamina you get it you know but that's fine that's a core rules change rather than anything else most of it tends to be core rules changes to my understanding there's only one card, and I say that to my understanding because, yeah, it's a massive, massive game. I am 100% sure someone will sit down and go, oh, this card you're having four of, and that's cool if you do. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm right and in search through the imagination, but there's only one card I can think of that was invalidated by the changes we made, which we've applied a new version for in the Tomb of Giants box. So it's replaced by that effectively. But um, all of your old miniatures, all of your old cards, all of your old tiles, all of your old enemies, all that sort of st- bosses, all of that can be put into the new rule set and you can just carry on playing using it for all your old content. Yeah. So it sounds more like Dark Souls 1.5 rather than a completely new edition. Would that be fair? Yeah, it's it's that's not unfair. It's something where there is one there is there is um that's probably the fairest way of looking at it. There is one thing in it which is the new campaign system. That's something we had a lot of feedback on. People wanted that to be deeper and wanted that to be more involved. So as a result, Tomb of Giants and Painted Worlds both use a new campaign system, which that's something you can't easily grab and go backwards with. Yeah. Uh, the old ca- you, know, you can still play your old campaigns, obviously, using the new rule set for your existing content. But that is something where, yeah, if you wanted to play one of the new style campaigns for the, you know, you have the old core set, for example, you can't do that. That said, that is something that we're going to make available to people in next year um, in Q1, where we'll actually make it available as free download. Hey, here's some cards you can do. So now you can play the core, get the old core set using these cards. Download for free. There'll be a drive through cards option where you can literally go get it printed if you prefer to have that done. So this is something where, crucially, the key thing is we want to support the community going forward. Yeah, this is our old one of our oldest communities now. This is somebody where you know there's insane amounts of passion, and we want this to be something where, you know, we're not about sort of taking all their toys and throwing them out and then sending them to buy new ones. That's not very nice to anyone. So we want to make sure that that happens, and people kind of can still use their content. Yeah, I mean, when you're first developing Dark Souls, what like you mentioned before, how you kind of make a fresh start and ask what are the kind of core elements. When you de- first developing the board game of Dark Souls, so yeah, Dark Souls, 
Mm. What were the core elements of the game that you wanted kind of to embed within the rules? So, system? I mean, this is going back a bit where around that time I was still lead writer. So I can, so slightly adjacent to that, but I can talk a little bit about, I know what, you know, for designers at the time, the, the key things that they looked at were, were obviously the difficulty curve of it how hard the game is it's, it's very hard tough. i played it yeah. and died a lot <laughs> that's what everyone does yeah. um so it's legendary difficulty is obviously one thing um that idea of risk and reward the idea i mean depending on how familiar you are with dark souls it's something where the game is you go out there you kill a bunch of enemies you accumulate your xp effectively which is in the form of souls but you don't get to spend that immediately you have to hang on to that until you get to the next checkpoint i.e the bonfire if you can do that then fantastic you can now spend that and you can level up and you do other stuff like that but the point is is if you get killed on the way then you're going to drop all of your souls and now you have to fight your way back to go get them and if you don't get that then your souls are gone and all that XP is wasted. So it introduces that element where players are, they want to explore, they want to go forward, they want to do this, but it's a risk-reward. There's a there's a push-pull there. Because the further deeper you go, the more XP you get, the more you can spend, but there's also more risk you'll fight a harder adversary that will you know be the end of you and then it sucks. <laughs> so that's kind of the... That's kind of like the driver of what it was. There was that mechanic in there. And then obviously the other thing was the bosses. The interesting thing about the Dark Souls universe is... Unlike a lot of other games, your character isn't really the rock star. You know, I mean, if you think of most video games, you know, it's Aloy from Horizon Zero Dawn, it's Lara Croft in Tomb Raider, it's you know whoever you're playing in the Resident Evil Shepherd, games, so on. There you go. Insert whoever you want as your hero. They are the person that you kind of gravitate towards. They're the ones you talk about. Dark Souls, it's the bosses. Everyone thinks about Grave Lord Nito, you know, Crossbury Priscilla. They're looking about, you know, talk about the dancer. They're talking about, you know, Gaping Dragon, whatever. You know, pick your boss of choice. That's the thing that's everyone sort of zooms in on. And we knew that when we were making this, that that was the most important thing to kind of get right. Because the grunts are ultimately sort of garnish on that plate. They're kind of, it's all about the real meat is in terms of like the let's let's fight the boss and make sure that feels really titanic as a struggle if you go all the way back to when we first made dark souls the demo that we made was the dancer versus the different you know versus the different uh, ashen ones and basically fighting that we didn't even have the section that gets you to the dancer because again the focus everyone wants is can you beat the dancer by the way the answer is no it's insanely hard and that's very dark souls but the point <laughs> is is that that's kind of what you're drilling into as part of what that experience is uh, uh, it makes me laugh because I've not actually played Dark Souls. My only okay. real exposure to it is people play, people joking about it, or if you can see my wallpaper behind me, my background, mm. the Viva Viva La Dirt League um, videos mm. they do about it. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah I, uh, I I played the video game and I played the board game and I died in both quite regularly. So <laughs> it's just got very frustrated <laughs> with both of these games. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, that's, a, that's yeah. kind of the thing, right? <laughs> it's, it's what it's designed. So, how do you balance play frustration with I don't know, the fact you die all the time with the kind of the exploration element? How do because I mentioned I know it's got, that's going to be very finely tuned to kind of create that. And um, balance of risk and reward. I mean, a lot of that is playtesting. A lot of that yeah. is playing it. And one of the things, there's a really obvious question that you'd think more people would ask, although I don't know they do, um, when they're playtesting things and you're doing QA stuff, which is, was it fun? Yeah. Hmm. And that's almost one of the very first questions I always ask anybody who sits down and plays our game for the first time is literally, did you have fun? Because ultimately, if you're not, then 
some people don't necessarily play games for fun and that's fair like you know no judgment there but but most people do at some level whether they're enjoying the fact that it's hard and they're struggling to do it whether they like it being a walkover and they just want to blast through and feel like a rock star for like an hour or whatever is it something where you know people enjoy that leveling up process and they like you know achieving their souls or whatever else and then getting to level up stuff do they enjoy the progress through a campaign do they enjoy storytelling whatever it is ultimately the reason why people play games is to have fun and i think when we're designing anything we always sort of stop and go right is this fun you know what's our who who, who are our audience for this game will they enjoy that part you know, will they enjoy that being quite fun um you know Dark Souls. What's the fun part about this game? Well, they really like the difficulty curve, so don't make it too easy because they won't enjoy that. They'll just blast through it and they won't feel challenging enough. Fair enough. Give them intelligent decisions to make because the audience wants to feel like they're making clever, um, intuitive sort of yeah, observations about the world around them and then kind of moving to sort of yeah, force enemies from killing them and stuff like that. These are where the elements of fun come in for those sort of games, for that particular game, and that's one of the big focuses to it. We've added in with the new campaign system combat puzzles now, so it's not always your objective isn't always kill all of the enemies on the table. Now it's hey, go pull this lever to open the portcullis and escape through it. You know, and you've got to do that in a certain time. Or we introduce bonus objectives like hey, if you can kill this particular big beastie by this time, you get some bonus items. So now players are going ah, oh, how can we achieve this thing? Lots and lots of different stuff like that that keeps people thinking. Those are part of the element of how you sort of take away and how you balance that because you kind of give people lots of different stuff to look at and that kind of can be itself can be something that modifies difficulty it can be something where it just introduces a whole bunch of flavor and mask that difficulty but there's lots of bits and pieces but ultimately and the honest answer is this if people keep playing it and play testing it and they say yeah we just couldn't do this we kept on dying that's when you go right let's put change a couple of levers adjust some dials turn it down a little bit you know maybe this thing is doing a little bit too much damage output maybe this thing's a touch too fast or maybe that scenario just isn't working because it's too complicated <laughs> and that's kind of how it works yeah. too and complicated when, and when is it when's this been released then when has it been released uh, it's available for pre-order now, uh, early November. This is the point where I know my colleagues in production are really going to suddenly hit me and tell me that you should know the date, you idiot. Um, I design <laughs> things. That's kind of what I think is. I know it's available, I, I know it's early November, I believe. I'm going to take a shot and say November 2nd. That's not going to be right, but I'm going to do my best. Okay. But it's certainly November. in that small window anyway there. And then somewhere between November 2nd and November 11th. I'm going to go with that. And that includes the two expansions as well. Well, they're not expansions; they're core sets. So, core sets. All oh, right, sorry. So yeah, okay. so they are. So you can buy. Yeah, you know, whenever you you get them, they are literally a standalone set and completely. So, oh wow! Okay. So so everything you have, everything you need in there. Because obviously, if you're a new player to this, uh, to this series, then you simply won't have any of the stuff you need. So therefore, buying this is a standalone experience where you can pick it up in a store, and you can just play it from go. Uh, and then and you can go for, and buy another box or another box, and then you yeah, can all Cause, cause, as well. Because, yeah, because you can get your existing, for example, Dark Souls boxes tend to be, there's obviously the big old core set, which is similar sort of to this. It's standalone. It has all the dice and all the other stuff in it. Um, you then have mega bosses, which are these big things like, you know, Black Dragon Calamity, Four Kings, you know, again, uh, Gaping Dragon mentioned this earlier, and a various Asylum Demon, various other different ones. And they potentially, they basically offer you a giant, great big monster that you can either bolt into your campaign as either this sort of end-end boss that you fight after you finish the rest, or you can replace one of the other bosses with. So you can just go okay. at the end, you know, you could go for the Tomb of Giants and go, do you know what? We're not going to fight Grave Lord Nito at the end. Yuck, he's gone. Black Dragon Academy was waiting for us instead. So it kind of gives you new ways to kind of bolt that into what your experience is. So 
the expansion, the old expansion will work with the new content, so you can build up that way if you want to. Nice. Cool. Also, so that it's like core sets, but they add like extra options to the other. Yeah. Okay. I mean, one thing that's always been a major pain of mine is like the setup time. How do you kind of when you've got especially like so many um, pieces, how do you kind of keep that setup time to minimum? So that's actually something where we always work on that. We always really, really zoom in to focus on it because you're right. Setup time sucks. It literally is the biggest drain. Like having to spend a whole bunch of time prepping, and you know, you do that bit where you're, hey guys, let's come to my house to go to, you know, let's let's go. You go order pizza. I'll be I'll be half hour putting all the stuff out on the table or whatever else. That's never cool. <laughs> Space Hulk. So <laughs> I don't know. I play Axis and Allies Global, man. That takes about half half a day to oh, set up. Axis and Allies. We yeah. could talk for we could talk for hours about that. I'm sure. Oh man. But um, don't don't do it. We'll be here at one o'clock in the morning if you let. Yeah. <laughs> Love that game. Um. Love that game. But um. You should check out a game I discovered earlier this year called War Room. I've got um, it. I've got it. Oh, one, 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 one. <laughs> no, this this has to happen now because you don't know the magnificence of this box until you see it. Look at that; it's beautiful. <laughs> right here. Yeah. Um, so, I, 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 you saw your eyes light up as soon as I said that. Well, I, do you, I, when it comes to games, right? Access. Have you have you have you seen Access and Allies Global? It's literally a five. It's like a five by three board. It's basically two games stuck together to have the entire sort of nineteen forty experience of World War Two. Me and my brother play that every Christmas. It takes two days and freaking love it. And when they saw that game come out, War Room, which I was just like, this can take three days to play. <laughs> it's got all kinds of things. I am on that. I'm like, I'm so into that game right now. There's, uh, there's these guys who come to Gen Con every year. I will get back to the original question, I promise. <laughs> there's these guys who uh, come to Gen Con every year. And I've for the last six years I've been there, I've, I've or whatever it is, I've, I've seen them every single year. They sit in exactly the same place. And they have access and allies and they set it up and bless them they all turn up and they've they're slightly older guys and they've got you know they occasionally they turn up in the uniform and everything else and they sit there and play around the table and that's their gen con and you know it's just really it's really sweet because they're obviously these old guys who just kind of sit down and that's like their yeah that's their big yearly event they do and there's something about it which is so endearing um, access and allies is and like and i've i've written an article but i've not posted it because i was going to maybe do a video but it is honestly in my opinion one of the greatest board games ever created like i me and my brother play the global version of it which is absolutely humongous it's huge it, it's oh. obscenely big but oh. i love it just because it's so well balanced and it's so like we play it all the time we even played it over lockdown over tabletop simulator with people oh. And every single game was different because there's all kinds of different things that you can do. Even though all the units are similar on both sides, there's just so much you can do. And I just never get bored of that game. I love it so much. It is easily my favorite game of all time. I love it. Well, there you go. See? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and I can understand why people play it. I, I, there's the zombies version of it, which is really good as well, because oh. it's like, I'm really not into this whole list to stick zombies into everything. But when I played Axis and Allies Zombies, it, it, it added a new level to it because in Axis and Allies, having infantry there is a big thing because it soaks up 
it soaks up your atta- attacks and stuff. You need to have your infantry in there when you're attacking so you can take oh. casualties. But the thing is, if you lose infantry and access and allies zombies, they turn into zombies and therefore it fucks you and stuff. So you have to be really careful because these oh. zombies are just popping up all over the place. And what starts off with these really small amounts of zombies, like you think, I'm well going to be able to deal with this. Turns out three quarters of the board is zombies by the end of it. And you're just literally, you're not fighting each other. You're just trying to survive and not get beaten by the zombies and stuff. Well, that's kind of what you want, though, right? Yeah. And it's really but anyway, good. back to setup. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things we always do is that's that's something where you have to bake it in early. That's an objective you have to say, like, okay, we know we don't want this game to have loads and loads of setup. And a really easy get out of jail card you can do if you've got a campaign game like Dark Souls is say, right, cool. The first time you set it up, it's going to be a little bit more onerous because you have to set up different decks and you have to do other bits and pieces and get the dashboard out. But once you're set, it's really straightforward. Just grab it out of the box and go, right, this deck goes here, this deck goes here, this deck goes here. Get your dashboard out, set, you know, literally throw some cards on there. Right, let's go. And that's one of the things where... Much like Bard Song, where we had that in a uh, very, very straightforward thing, where you can set up a game of Bard Song in about five minutes flat, at very most. Um, Dark Souls is very similar. Um, it's something where once you've set up those decks to start with, uh, you, you know, if you pack it away sensibly, which obviously you will do, you can literally just get it out and go, right, cool, these are, our, these are the encounters we've discovered so far on the map. Fantastic. These are our characters. Here's our treasure cards. Boom, boom, boom. Four on the board. Okay, fantastic. What are we going to do? And it's literally that. So we always bake that into our design these days because we want it to be that way. Um, and on a couple of the slightly older games, uh, Resident Evil 2 springs to mind, for example, where you have to set up an entire scenario. We've since started to evolve those in newer versions of the games where you don't necessarily have that setup, that setup kind of creep. You know, it's actually, if anything, it's reverse creep. Originally, Resident Evil 2, you had set up an entire, an entire scenario to play. Uh, that's since evolved into Resident Evil 1, where actually as you're exploring, you set up like two or three rooms at most. And then as you explore, you're drawing new cards to see what awaits you. Yeah. And that adds a whole new gameplay element to the game because you, you know, suddenly I have complete control over the board and I could strategize where to go. Now I have no idea. Um, and that's kind of an interesting point. So yeah, lots of bits and pieces like that. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's one board game out there, um, aliens, um, and glows in the car. Like you have to assemble all the miniatures before you can play the game. That's so annoying. And that is such a it's not like and it's not just like pop the head on or it's literally eight pieces to form one miniature. And it's just that level of you know, setup. It's just I do not have time. That's the one thing that really frustrates me about games workshop board games and stuff. Um it's like you have to you, you can't just plug and play you have to literally sit there and build i appreciate their miniatures company and stuff but you have to sit there and build all these things and stuff and i spend my <laughs> life building gray plastic and i just can't be arsed with it anymore so when games come out where i can just sort of you know <laughs> play like you know just take stuff out of the box and just play then i'm like yeah i'm i'm, I'm all in for that 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 was almost my appeal about x-wing was you could just mm. buy the bits yeah. yeah that's it yeah the yeah. worst thing you had to do was pop out all the bits of card yeah when you yeah. bought one of the baseball sets and we won't it's, talk about uh, second edition and the conversion sets. <laughs> There's, um, funnily enough, that's that's one of the things that drove us. Uh, so Godtier, which is our uh, miniature skirmish game, that was really driven by exactly what you guys are talking about. Um, so something that Matt, our creative director, coined was the Christmas Day test, because exactly what you're talking about with Space Marines and you know that sort of thing. Hey, I've got this new toy I want to play with. Fantastic! I crack it open. 
and then I cut all the bits off the sprues and I file things down and I glue them into place and glue my hand to my face a couple of times. And it's Boxing and I Day. Here. And then, yeah, and I open the rule book and I read it all and I go, fantastic. Now it's Boxing Day. Oh, whereas, got to you by comparison, the miniatures are pre-assembled. There's not a load of them. The rules are deliberately kept quite light and breezy. So that way it's got like a, and it's the way we introduce things in our rule books as well. Like our rule books often are tutorialized. So it literally says, First page, fantastic. Here's you. Like, you know, get these things out. Okay, we're going to teach you combat first. Go do that thing. Don't read any further until you've done combat. So you sit down, you play the combat tutorial. Next page. Okay, well done. You survived combat. Now let's talk about exploration. Here's the next bit. Okay, this is how I explore. Fantastic. Now go do this small bit of exploration. It has some fighting in it. Go do that. Okay, open the next bit. Fantastic. Now you know the game. Get going. And at that point, you've kind of walked into it. You understand what you're doing. It's it's video game 101. You don't just get dropped in at the deep end and have to learn all the rules. They teach you things slowly, but but that's something which really makes that onboarding experience really like uh, really key. And I think that's a that's the thing that we often do with a lot of our products. We we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we how do we make it so that the end user experience is optimal. Yeah, whether that be from a rules comprehension, whether that be from onboarding people through tutorializing stuff, yeah, miniatures assembly, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's one thing that I've observed on the game on the gaming group side of things. Um, about two months back, we had a couple of guys, a couple of younger lads start. They were oh. about ten or eleven, and they turned up. Each of them turned up with a parent, and they had a whole box of stuff that they they bought just randomly, nearly oh. different figures and stuff like that. And they were like, "We want to play." And so, optimistic, one of my one of my friends said, "That's cool. We'll we'll teach you how to play 40k." Mm. And th- there was just nothing going on. It was just bouncing off them after a little bit. Mm. And we ended up we've we've got them playing one page rules. All right, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it was a lot simpler. Because we mm. we're finding a lot, especially with the current edition of 40k, is that it's not just that you start and you need to learn everything, but it's you need like three or four books and an FAQ and a points update and several decks of cards that you have to shuffle through part of the way through the game, to, all the way through the game to keep track of things and victory points and objectives and stuff like that. And then we find, we're seeing more people wanting to play like we're playing gang fight games with one page rules, Warcry's mm. becoming popular, Kill Team, because it's a much more constrained thing because it's not just the scale of it, um, you know, in terms of the building and the doing, but it's also the scale of being able to play something as well. Oh. And when you front load, having to get loads of stuff together and revise it and do all the prep, people don't, you know, it's that same thing. It's that barrier to entry of not wanting to put in six hours of work to play for two hours. <laughs> yeah. I think that barrier barrier of entry is really what you're talking about there. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Where you just described that. A lot of, Design obviously is in balancing and playtesting and writing rules and robustness and all that sort of stuff. But it's also about reducing barriers. Yeah, whether that be you know making it so you don't have to clip loads of things off of sprues, whether it be how to set up quickly, whether it's complexity of rules. Like any time, players should never have to. You know, once they've once they've read the rule but that once, and once they've started playing it and so on. If a player has to go back to the rulebook every other turn, then you have failed from a design perspective because it should be something where the game is intuitive and you can just play it and blast through and enjoy yourself. It's always a thing. Like uh, most of our games, you know, I they've always been play, they've always been designed from a perspective of we can teach you to play it really really quickly, at, you know, a show or whatever else or a con or whatever else, and you can sit there and play it. 
And once you've got it, the actual thing itself is very intuitive. We build very straightforward systems where, you know, it's that's it's that simple thing where everyone always says easy to learn, difficult to master. That's a very overused statement. But we put a lot of our complexity into our cards, things that you grab and you read as it happens. So you then literally learn on the job kind of thing. Like, uh, you know, if I think about if I think about um, Dark Souls, so the actual turn structure is really, really straightforward. You have a turn, you can move, and you can you know, spend an action, and that action most of the time is attack, but occasionally it's, a, oh, I can interact with this with this piece of terrain. You know, I can read Tombstone or whatever else, that sort of stuff. Um, complexity comes in when you start looking at what the actual objectives are, and that's the bit where you go, ah, but now we need to go and protect this shrine. Okay, hmm, how are we going to do that? But because it's part of the gameplay, because the way we ask you to do these things, it doesn't feel onerous. It doesn't feel like it's it's something where you have to keep going back to the rulebook all the time because you've got so many options in front of you. It's something where your play experience is pretty straightforward and that helps you focus in on what your objectives are and that ultimately leads to you enjoying it more. Yeah. Has, has the kind of, in regards to Barrier to Play, has the fact that some of these games have been based on video games, has that seen a lot of new players from start experiencing board games for the first time? And how do you kind of introduce the elements of a board game to essentially exi- existing video game players? One of the proudest moments I think I have as a designer is knowing how many people play now play tabletop games because of games like resident evil um and dark souls um there are a whole bunch of people who i mean we, we were steam was i think i don't think this is an unfair statement i think we were one of the first tabletop companies in the tabletop space to start looking at video games as hey this is an interesting thing no one's really making board game tabletop adaptations of this stuff dark souls is one of the first of its kind and resident evil definitely uh, same sort of thing and there are so many people I've I've seen on our journey um, who are SFG fans. I could go through names. I won't drop name drop them obviously because they probably won't be watching this. But the point is, is that there are so many people who have come to our games time and time again because they've enjoyed that one experience. So they've never had any experience of video game, of tabletop games before, but since they've realised actually I really like this. This is a whole new thing that I can now enjoy myself, and that's really rewarding. And you know I'm proud that we managed to achieve that because that means that we hit it right. And that means that, you know, ultimately we've made a really cool experience for those people, which is awesome. So, so that's good. In terms of of how you appeal to those sort of that audience, again, it, it's tutorializing the rule books. So the way that you layer in the rules, it's thinking about complexity levels and you know reducing it a touch because you don't want it to be overly complex for someone who's never experienced that sort of stuff before. It's making things uh, callbacks to how they would. It's how you describe things. For example, if I'm talking about um, a lot of video game stuff, I'll say like, okay, so spinning an action is like pressing X on your PlayStation remote. And straight away, that to a player, to a gamer, they go, I've got it. I know exactly what that is. Whereas if you're talking to a video gamer about, uh, sorry, to a t- traditional tabletop gamer, you say activation, they're like, oh, I get that. It's a turn. There's lots of lang- there's lots of small little language barriers and jargon that as gamers we use which aren't necessarily obvious to someone who's outside of our little group of people. And so you need to sort of think about what they are and eliminate those. Um, activation is always a favorite one because activation to a tabletop gamer means a very, very different thing to it does to every other human being on the planet. Um, because that's just not a word that comes up much or if it does, it means, you know, a dramatically different thing to this is your turn. But say that to a tabletop gamer, they're like, Oh, I know an activation. Yeah, sure. 
small things like that. Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of, the, one of the best games I ever played was with the, in the very first pitch, I had a glossary mm. of terms of this is what we mean when we use this word. Yeah. And that re- removes tons of ambiguity. So I'd approach it from a different perspective. Um, okay. I'm not saying it's wrong, but get rid of those words. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, that's just as valid. Yeah, and then you don't need the glossary because that's another barrier. Like any that, piece of jargon that you put into your rule book is a careful consideration of do we need to put that in or can we get rid of that? Yeah, what's the intent? How can we better write that rule so that, that way that, that doesn't need to be in there? Do we need that? Um, do we need something that says activation? Do we or could we use turn? Another one that commonly trips, you know, used to trip us up ages ago is when when X happens, immediately resolve this. OK, do we need the word immediately in there or can we just say when X happens, resolve this? Small things like that make you have easy. It's easier to make small declarative sentences, which immediately make things easier for someone to understand because there's less words in there so they can just read it. It's more punchy. It's more visible to them. And but it also, also gets rid of jargon, reduces it. Yeah. Also, when you say immediately resolve this, people start thinking, have I missed something somewhere else yep. where it didn't Just say immediately? Conversely, <laughs> conversely suddenly now though, you immediately has to creep in everywhere. Conversely, yeah. though, you do have that sort of thing where you will get, you know, I, I, everybody tries to make sure they're, I'm sure their game is sort of foolproof and stuff, but you'll get a point where something interacts differently. And you're like, so can I then use this? Because it doesn't say I have to use it immediately. I can do it this. So, you know, that's where game-breaking things come in. So I understand why they maybe put things like that in, because it has to happen now instead of later yeah. on. Yeah, timing steps are a necessary evil, I think, for many things. Well, not even necessary evil. They're just a necessary thing for most compacts, for most resolutions. If I think of something like Horizon Zero Dawn, or even, you yeah, know, whatever, that... There's a very specific attack pattern to that, which is literally numbered in the rulebook and says, do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. And any card that you have has to very cleanly fall into that. So players immediately know this is where I play this thing. This is where I... And there will always be that one card that you want to put in that will that will buck that trend, that will mean that you can't do that thing. And it's, it's worth conversation of, A, how much do we really want that card in this game? And then, to, you know, how cool is it? Because rule of cool is always the rule, right? So how cool is this thing to put in the game? And second one is, <laughs> if that goes in, where do we write the exception to clear that up? Do we put it on the card itself? If it's not possible, do we have to write it into, bake it into the rule? And if we bake it into the rule, has the cleanest way of doing it? Because as soon as you start looking at that way, you're now trying to justify the thing's existence. And at that point, sometimes it's such a cool effect that it's worth doing. But if you're doing it for one card, then you probably want to make it for other stuff. I'm a big fan very much when it gets to exceptions in rules that one of the ways you tidy them up is actually go, well, if we really think the game works this way and this thing really jumps out and it's really, really awesome, let's do it every turn. Let's do it so that it happens over and over because then it's a core rule. It's much easier to understand and comprehend. Because mm. so. every special case you do is another place where someone can say, actually, screw it and walk yeah. away because they're just like, it, it, it was easy till now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we're getting a very deep game design. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm really not complaining because I dabble with game design for different things with some friends. So for me, this is kind of this is awesome. <laughs> this is like so I, I I'm, I'm it's weird. Like I love complicated games. I don't like learning them, but I like playing them because oh. like I like all these different things going on, and I can sort of kind of think things out and stuff like that. But more recently, in my in my old age, 
I've been playing more simple games, and I have to say, I'm sort of enjoying them a lot more and stuff. I'm still kind of getting that sort of, I'm getting to think about things, but because it's not so dense, and <laughs> uh, it, it really is sort of, you know, I am enjoying it a lot more. Like, I've, you know, I've lost a lot of love for 40k recently and stuff, because it's just, it's so dense now. It's gone back to what it used to be, where it's just so thick, there's so much shit going on, so much power creep, so much ambiguity and a lot of things, and it's like... I'm just ba- I'm past that, you know. I play Blood Bowl now, and it's sort of very quite basic and stuff. There's not there is there are obviously rules, but they're quite simple to get your head around. Um, I play a lot of Song of Ice and Fire tabletop game and stuff. Again, very basic rules and stuff. There's very you know pretty much what you're doing, um, and so yeah. As much as I do have this sort of thing for big complicated games, simplicity is definitely key to keep you sort of kind of. In, and and we've seen we've seen that with the kind of the OSR, uh, old school old school rules revival, that's coming back. We're basically having a very basic rule system, and to tell stories, and that's coming back quite massively at the moment. I mean, um, uh, Morkborg, that's done amazingly well, and that is a very basic rule system. I think when you th- in my mind it's like so like I I was always da- I've got this idea grand idea have this massive sort of like you know for years and years and years and years like going back 15 20 years I've been like I want to have this game and it's going to have weather conditions it's going to have entrenchments it's going to have <laughs> it's going to be you know it's going to be land air sea and space it's going to have all this cool thing it's going to have these things and I've got all these like and that's just like the amount of rules that would need to go into this and it's like one day I'm going to do it just for myself but I don't think it's going to be that enjoyable because it's just have going you, to be so dense and so thick that you've have just you not seen something go on Steam called Command Modern Operations? Yes, yeah, what's well, that, like that's that's the computerized version of what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, well, it's just like because I, it simulates simulates all the domains, all different actions. Yeah, it simulates supply chains and all sorts of things. Yeah, or the other game that you know is all you is probably something like Hearts of Iron. Oh yeah, uh, man, the games like that, like I, I like I love Stellaris and stuff. And me and my brother, because we love Stellaris. Uh, we thought, oh, we'll give, like, um, Crusader Kings a go. Fucking couldn't understand it, man. Like, it's like, it just drops you in, and it's just like, it's, go. It's the sub, it's the subsystems that will kill you in those games. Yeah, yeah. It's... And, and it's, well, there's an interesting parity that happens with, um, there's an interesting point with, so Hearts of Iron is a really good example of, of a game where it started out as uh, a key example of a rule set. So, so here are the rules of the game. It, it, it is what it is. And then every subsequent release has just kind of layered on more levels of complexity. So yeah. now you've got espionage in it. Now you've got, you know, your tech trees and so on. It's so much more complicated everything else. You know, kind of, you yeah, depend on what nation you are and that sort of stuff. There's so many more political decisions to make. There's loads of extra bits and pieces here and here and here and here and here. If you're someone who just literally bought it the other day and has the most up-to-date version, you are lost. You've got no hope yeah. of learning everything yeah. and actually picking up on that. And the only thing you can do, which works for you in this case, is that, if you're playing it solo, you can pause and then try and work out what the hell just happened. Yeah. And that's about it. But there's an interesting point where, especially when you look at a game, like, you know, not to pick on 40K, but think of a tabletop miniatures game. That can happen with those too, because, you know, you have this thing come out, and there's another bit of the rules that come out, and another bit of the rules that come out, and another bit of the rules that come out, and so on. Well, and depending like, on when you jumped onto that train, you just yeah. get lost. Yeah, like, and that's, the, classic, and that's the thing to be careful of. Like the th- classic one we vote is there is, is the vote ten recently. All right, they, um, they yeah, I knew they'd come. Where, up. Yeah. Go nuts. It, it's the obvious thing to say is that 
it's the balance between releasing rules to sell miniatures yes. and then rebalancing them back after you've sold the kit. And that's basically what happened there is that they forgot in some in places they seem to have forgotten that they're selling a game and they're more about wanting people to go out and do these big splashy releases. Yeah. And then everybody gets upset because everything's invalidated. And then they go, actually, yeah, it's a good point. We'll wind that back. They just did it at a much quicker rate this time around because everyone was so sensitized, hypersensitized to it. Yeah, they overstretched but... themselves uh, and they uh, they realized really quickly that they'd overstepped the mark because I love, you know, I've been, I've been doing sort of games workshops since Rogue Trader. Like, and my dad, the you know, first day my dad brought me a blister pack of Space Marines and the, the Rogue Trader book and stuff. So, like, from the 80s. Um, I've been sort of kind of doing 40k. I love the lore, love the idea, you know, the whole the whole thing. Um, I've got loads of really nostalgic sort of kind of feelings about sort of kind of Games Workshop stuff. But it's so, it literally is just for them to sell models. It's like they are just like the power creep is literally, this codex is out. These guys are super amazing. Therefore, everybody goes and buys them. And then they sort of kind of, more recently, they bring them down again. And then they bring out the new faction and they do the same thing. So everybody goes out. As a business idea, it's great because people are just buying and buying and they've got no self-control and they keep on buying all these new things. But it kills the game. And they overstep the mark with the ladies of Wutan because they brought out this squats, which everybody's being sort of killed. You know, I the idea of having squats back again is amazing. But then it just made them so powerful that everybody went, whoa, 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 what the fuck are you doing? Because they thought, oh, if we make them really powerful, everybody will buy them. And then, you know, everybody kicked off, finally kicked off and went, yeah, you're not doing this for the game. You're doing this to sell models. And I think that was a turning point for them. But yeah, it's getting really annoying for me because they've got this point now where it's just about one-upping the last sort of set of codexes and stuff and you just can't play a game i can't use my i'm space wolves i i've always played space wolves um and i can't play them efficiently because or i can't play what i want to play because i need to have a specific type of unit and a specific type of thing or i'm just going to die all the time when i play in any game and it's just it's become so bloated like they had ninth, sorry, eighth edition came out and they made they simplified everything, and then pretty mm-hmm. much from that point on, they've ramped it up again to be effectively, you know, like sixth edition, seventh edition, and it's just, it's just not but, enjoyable anymore. But one of the, one of the problems they have to reach back to one of the things you were saying about if this is an unusual rule, why should you have a difference in there, and if so, what should you do about it? Is there's if you look at the different codexes, there's lots of places where the same rule in some variation occurs for like multiple people in different ways yeah. and it has a different name yeah. and it's described slightly differently, but the end result is the same thing. And it's usually something like the, the feel no pain rule. Yeah. What, what, get, what gets me is, and you've been talking about sort of play testing, which would be a, a, interesting your view on this and stuff, but it's like for a company that size, and I know people who play test for games workshop and stuff, but it's like for a company that size, you would think they would be able to have, certain ambiguities ironed out but they don't seem there's always there's always conflict there's always ambiguity and there's always a need for a a fact straight afterwards or things straight afterwards you would think especially with the release date where they focus on one thing they would be able to sort of kind of work out all the kinks and stuff but they don't and it's so frustrating because you spend a lot of money 
and you, you think and then there's changes pretty much straight away prime example where this when the space world codex came out and an entire page was pretty much null and void from pretty much the release because they got it they got it all wrong and it was just like what are you doing i don't understand like from steamport's point of view when you're play testing things do you are, are you pretty happy when they're finished or do you find that there is sort of faults you're finding afterwards I mean, that's a again another huge question. Uh, I think, I mean, for, for stars, and being completely candid, there are always annoyingly because it's never a nice thing to have, but you always have that fear in the pit of your stomach, and it will inevitably come true in some way, shape, or form. There will be a typo you missed, whatever else, right? Because the games we produce have hundreds, if not thousands, of cards. And that's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff. You could spend months reading them and you still miss that one word here or there or that one that one yeah. number that's crept in. And there's so many stages where that can happen. Like, you know, if you, you can have like, you know, the original notes that kind of come in from, you know, from development and go, right, now we're going to do a rules pass over this, make sure we're super happy with it, make sure polish all the language, do everything. There's a point straight away where that could creep in. Then you have a graphic design handover where graphic design start doing the, you know, the layout and putting things into cards and so on. There's another whole bunch of stuff that can creep in because obviously something gets copy pasted incorrectly or is just on an old card for whatever reason. Then you kind of have various different proofing passes, that sort of stuff there. Then you go into like different checks with different people and so on. Yeah, maybe adjustments get made or whatever. There's other bits and pieces that happen there. So there's so many potential stages where something can creep in. That said, I think the the biggest the biggest thing which I mean, one of the things you're talking about there from the experience of of you know the games you're talking about there is that's a uh, a miniatures game which obviously is a moving target at best because there's not like a single release and that's the release. It's something where it's an ongoing game, and especially a company the size of Games Workshop, they have to contend with the fact that yeah, they have shifting dates. Like it could well be that Space Wolf Codex was supposed to come out, you know, six months after it came out or six months before it came out or whatever else. People don't necessarily realize how long it takes to to make a lot of stuff that we make. You know, if, I, if I'm thinking about, if I'm thinking about Elden Ring or let's use Dark Souls, we'll stick with Dark Souls. If I think about Dark Souls, we started working on Dark Souls like last year. Like it's not a new thing. That It, it may just be releasing now, but it takes a whole bunch of time to make these things. You know, it, it takes a whole bunch of time to test these things and go through design stages and everything else. And it's easy to lose sight of that because because the way that you know people don't necessarily have touch points with how production works and everything, people kind of assume, oh, well, you can you know bash this thing out in three months or whatever else <laughs> and be reactive to the community and so on. And it's simply put, that's that's not how it works. Yeah, you, know, you have to be and Games Workshop, they'll have they'll be a big company and they'll have lots of discussions about, you know. We're moving this release to the right a little bit because of xyz reason we're moving this to the left a little bit because of xyz reason and that can mean that juggling how that's going to happen and how that's going to land can be quite difficult in terms of balancing in terms of how much time you might get truncated testing for example you might not get as much time to test that as you want maybe that actually you know you've got loads and loads of time to super polish it and as a result it came out and it's really balanced or it's actually went you know got overly polished because people got really concerned about something instead of just going that's fine they then really drilled into it and went mm, this is too strong now you lost distinctiveness whatever else lots of different reasons can happen there thing is with i understand like i know i've had rants about kickstarters and things like that and then people kind of go look <laughs> you have to understand there's there's other stuff going mm. on so i do understand 
there's lead times and there's lots of and things my sort of con- my sort of frustration especially with games workshop it, what is partially down to love because it's something i've i've grown up with oh, it's all passion much. yeah it's something the reason why grown- everyone gets so excited about yeah the product is because they're so passionate about it yeah so you have just it's something i've grown up grown up with like literally since day dot i've it's been in so when you you start to not hate, but you've got this sort of kind of love-hate thing going on with something that you have strong feelings for your kid. It's sort of slightly annoying. And for me, it's more that if you have a game that big and that bloated and you are having to change things all the time as it's going along, then surely you're going to get to a point where there's critical mass and you've got to you've got to sit back and go, look, we're, there's, there's too much here. We need to sort of kind of bring this back again uh and 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 not alienate the alienate the uh the the, the players the consumers and stuff mm. but i think with games workshop they're like well in the end they're still going to buy these models and stuff and i'm the same like i see pretty things and i'm like i, I like the pretty things and stuff and it's like the, the games just seems to be bolted on to that and stuff and it's like it's just sort of it frustrates me because it's like they're for a company their size, and I understand there is you know so I don't get I don't go completely mental when they you know when, when my Space Wolves Codex was out of date pretty much straight away because of a page and things and they do come in and they do facts and stuff like that but it's like if it getting so big and so bloated then surely you should take a step back and sort of think right this to be a good game we need to slow down and work out some of these kinks and not keep mm. on plowing along just because we want to f- sell plastic crack to people um, but i, I think, think they're well, they're very much a case of let's sell plastic crack to people and keep on going well if i can that neatly is back to dark souls yeah which is one <laughs> of the things we wanted to achieve with the with the rule set and i think we did is we haven't added, I mean, we've added a couple of rules, but we've streamlined elsewhere. We've always kept a point of where our complexity points are. We have something where, this isn't just a Steam Forge thing, I'm 100% sure other people talk about it this way, but we approach things thinking about where do we spend our complexity points? If you make this thing more complex, then there's something else somewhere else has to has to become more streamlined or smoother to understand. We do have a new edition. We did introduce some new bits and pieces to it. They were either modifying an existing rule, so it didn't really add any complexity. For example, you now get three stamina back at the start of your turn instead of two. There's no extra complexity points there. That's just a slight adjustment of a dial. You know, we introduced a tactical element of now players get to move when it's not their turn. They get to move at the start of another player's turn. Well, why? Because that gives other people sitting around the table something to do while someone's taking their turn, so everyone gets engaged. Slight more complexity points, but at the same time, we can smooth out other areas and say, well, actually, action you know, economy is very straightforward. You can move, you can attack, do it whichever order you want. But that's pretty much it. And here's a very simple list in terms of how it's explaining the rules of how you resolve that thing. So players can very quickly pick that up. And then therefore, moving an extra square when it's not your turn is very straightforward to do once you've learned how that stuff works. We very much, apart from the fact that we obviously didn't want to invalidate anything for people, um, we wanted to make sure that we weren't using that to ramp up complexity or make that much more complicated or anything else. And that's a really big thing when it actually comes to stuff like some of the some of the uh, rules that we looked at when we were looking at some of the house rules. There's lots, one of the easiest things to do from a design perspective is to go, oh, we could do this thing, put in that extra complexity, oh, put in that thing, put in that thing, put in that thing, oh, look at where we got to. It's really easy when you're designing a game to go down this sort of rabbit hole of, throwing loads and loads and loads of different ideas, loads and loads of stuff. 
you need to be able to step back at the end of the day and go, right, cool. I don't know anything about this game. Now I'm going to try and learn it. And if you're looking at going, what you're talking about with like loads and loads of depth of, oh, I can have land, air and space and underwater. Yeah. And if you then step back and go, if I'm not me, who knows all those design processes I went through and I'm just trying to learn this thing from flat, I've got no hope because it's just so overly complicated. So that's something we tried to keep at a consistent level. We made amendments, but we kept everything at the same level as where it was. Or if we did make it a touch more complex, somewhere else is, is more streamlined to balance that out. We didn't want it, or it's designed to be intuitive, so you just get it really quickly and you can keep on moving. Uh, well, that's Criminal... thing. When I played uh, the Dark Souls board game many, many years ago, um, it, it was... It was, it's a hard game, but it's not a complicated game. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm glad when you're saying you're, you're looking at refining things and making them sort of kind of more um, intuitive. And I think that's a good way to go. Because I, I understand, like, for me, when I see things like, again, with Axon Alleys, there's... there's um, there's sort of house rules you can add into it to add more complexity and stuff. And I was saying to my brother, oh, we should add this in and we add in. And he's like, yeah, but if we do that, then there, we're, there's going to be a lot of confusion over these things and stuff. And it, it always has a knock-on effect. Whereas if you streamline stuff, it might not make as much sense, but it makes it a lot easier. Prime example, right? Well, I play this Song of Ice and Fire tabletop game, which is a really good sort of kind of... Unfortunately, cool minis are not, aren't very good at supporting it, but it's sort of... It's a very good sort of kind of tabletop sort of rank-and-flank game. And there's a thing where, you know, your guy's in trees. You think, I should get cover saves while they're shooting at me in the trees you don't get a cover save for being in the trees you just if this makes it harder for the you get a defense that they charge into it and stuff they don't overcomplicate it it's not a complicated thing there's it's literally just go hit them in the side hit them in the front and you get that and part of you is kind of going yeah but i'm in the trees i should get a cover save and stuff but it's like but if as soon as you start adding in that complexity it starts having a knock-on effect to other things and then they have to add in more complexity and then it gets too bloated Games yeah. Workshop just added way too much of this, whereas if you keep it nice and simple, like you're talking about, nice and simple and streamlined, so people can literally just read the rules as straight away and go, I understand this game. And I mean, I, I'm buying into that a lot more now. I mean, similarly, if you look at cover mechanics in tabletop games, for Games Workshop, right. you have different kinds of terrain and different heights of cover, and that affects what it will do. And you have, you know, if it's this much, if it's like 75% of the base coverage, you get this much. And then you go to OPR where they're like, is the bit of is the um bit of terrain more than two more than two inches tall? Yes. Are you within an inch of it? Yes, right, you get cover save for it. Is the person shooting at you unless the person that's shooting at you is also so close to it, for example, and they're just popping over the wall. But as long as one of you's here and one of you's there and the cover's there, that's a straight one minus one cover save. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's you don't need to the temptation when designing something is always to simulate. Simulation is the reason why a lot of decisions got made in early wargame um, designs. And at that point, there was more an effort of, hey, let's make this thing simulate exactly what would happen on a battlefield. <laughs> and as a result, I mean, we're, let, let us not forget, we are talking about people running around in a fantasy universe with dragons, or we are talking about these space, you know, things in space shooting each other with la you know, lasers. Let's not do that. Let's think about it from a perspective of what's good gameplay. What is fun around the table? What feels nice to play? What feels intuitive or what feels, you know, or what is a good experience? Let's start from that point. Because here's the secret: you can skin whatever way you want to, you know, skin that rule that you want to have. 
was what you were talking about with cover. One thing we encountered interestingly with Bardsong, for example, is so we have um, I'll try to explain to you if you guys haven't played, but basically we have we have like an enemy card. We have a marching order, which is our initiative track. And um, at the start of every round, you shuffle all of the things that are in the combat and then the cards for those, and then you lay them out in a row. And then the one at the leftmost, the one at the leftmost position, that goes first. You know, the card gets tapped, you then move on to the next one, so on, so you work your way all the way along, and you've done that. Now, enemies, you don't shuffle an enemy card for each enemy in there, only each enemy type in there. And when it gets oh, to the okay. enemy's card, every enemy of that type takes an action. Okay. Now, what's interesting is the the, to- the way that wounds work in, in the game is that we never, ever want things to have loads and loads of tokens everywhere to keep track of. So enemies in Bardsun can only have had top of two wounds, and then something happens. They either die, or you flip their card over, and that kind of gives them like an exhausted state or a bloodied state or maybe frenzied. Variety of different things that can happen. So now, that's their have, trigger. Yeah, that's like a it. trigger condition. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And when you get to some enemies where you really injure one of them and you flip it over, people feel back, well, why have, I been, why have I caused two wounds to this guy? Well, now you flipped his card over. All of them have got two wounds. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense. Well, well, that's not a wound stat. It's called grit. It represents discipline. It represents resilience, morale. You know, sometimes it's wounds, whatever else. Think of it this way: there's a whole bunch of these hulking great brutes surrounding you. You've done two wounds on one of them, and it howls with rage. And now the others are demoralized because they've seen their you know their previously invincible mate suddenly now he's bleeding from everywhere. So they're more likely to break if you do a couple more wounds to them to run off. Yeah, I, or. I... That stuff like that, it's always skins, isn't it? Yeah, when you said about simulation, that it's bang on that. And I, I, I in my mind, when I'm sort of thinking about it, it's like, I want to add this, and I want to add this, and I want this, because it's more realistic. But the thing is, more realistic becomes more complex. Whereas if you break it down nice and simple, and you can explain it as like, exactly like you said, this is just the way it is. And if you can get over that, you will enjoy simpler games me personally i've got into more simpler games because i've got over myself and 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 it's like i don't need everything to be, be realistic i don't need it to be con- uh, sort of campaign for north africa where you're literally having rations for noodles for the italian soldiers and stuff like that you don't have you know i don't need that you know i can have a basic role where it's just like well this is just the way it is you know because you know and that makes the game slow faster and you can enjoy it because you will spend way too much time in the rule book and not actually playing the game and um, you know yeah i mean it reminds me of did you ever play epic matt uh rings a bell so that was the six mil scale yeah so the six mil scale uh 40k yeah Oh, epic, there's that. epic, yes, yeah, I love Epic. Yeah. And then also the most recent and abandoned um, version of Apocalypse. Yes. Did you ever get a chance to play that? So basically they use the same the same rules, but at different scales in yeah. a lot of ways. And one of the things they had was suppression. Yeah. Oh. So everything was very high level because you're dealing with, you're not dealing with minis, you're dealing with units. So what would happen is when you were shoot, when you were getting shots on stuff and scoring hits, you'd get blast markers and you'd have small blast markers and large ones, which were three. And at the end of every turn, when first off, when you're when things are happening to them, the number of blast markers you've got will affect what dice they rolled for tests. So the more blast markers, the higher the dice, the bigger the dice you were using, so the more chance that you'd fail. Um, or the smaller the dice, so the better, the harder to succeed because you had to hit the same number. And then the more you had in the end phase, was a better chance that that group would break. And that always worked for me because. The blast markers were the flashes, or people would make them like little sort of like smoke pies, 
And so you, that made sense because it sat next to the unit and you could see at a glance that a unit was probably quite ragged around the edges and looking panicky. Yeah, I I liked I you know I liked uh, with with it with Epic in that you know with when combat it was sort of sh- shooting happened simultaneously. There was sort of like you put blast markers down and then you removed everything afterwards and stuff. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everything had a chance to go. Yeah, and oh. then at the end of the and the same with apocalypse at the end of the turn, that's when casualties happened. Yeah, I I I'm I'm, I'm I really hate alpha strikes. I hate not being able to sort of. I love games where it's alternate activations. I like alternate activations yeah. because oh. it makes you feel like you're getting to use guys and you're not sort of all your big lovely models that you sat there painting are dead pretty much straight away. I like that. I like the ones where there's everything happens at the same time. Uh, it's a really good sort of mechanic. And reactions. reactions. I'm hearing a lot of good things. I don't play mm. Horus Heresy. But a lot of my friends who are starting to play it or do play it are saying that they really like the concept of reactions in there, which is I think that some other systems like Infinity had already anyway. And they had a certain amount of that in Kill Team. Infinity where is an underrated game. I've never really had a chance to try it. It looks cool. I love the love the miniatures. And I hear that they've got better about it because it got overcomplicated again. And they've just brought out a new rule set, which is a skim down rule set, because they've done what you guys were talking about what you were talking about there they've listened to players and they said actually that's a really good point it's really cool that we've got all this stuff we've built up and we love it to bits because we spent so much time on it but people are put off trying to learn it because yeah of that but it's like and again you know i, I, I probably keep on going like we're, we should be talking about steamforge stuff and we're talking about 40k and no. stuff but last moment on <laughs> it before we sort of kind of move on again but that's cool it, it's like um what they brought in like games workshop reduced it so they moved from seventh edition they went this is the this is the complicated one so we're going to move that to horace heresy we're going to do eighth edition <laughs> now they're on ninth and that's simplified so they really they literally cut out a load of stuff where i thought oh that's a really good idea they cut out a load of stuff it was more straightforward there was a lot of sort of like well this should happen but people like no but then they just built 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 and brought it right back to where it was again and it's just like come on guys you know you had something that could have worked and now you're literally just it's just over bloated over it's, it's what it's what um sherman said it's the tendency isn't it to put cool stuff in yeah well, that's <laughs> it i understand i i understand because i i'm very much i like that cool stuff that's added and when i play a game i have to have all the expansions play everything at the same time there's not like let's play the base game it's let's play the base game and all 50 expansions around it because i want to have Actually, all the cool stuff that reminds me of something matt weren't you supposed to be going cold turkey on kickstarter and you're talking about all these kickstarters oh yeah in my defense i i've <laughs> not bought anything that war room came after i think it i got i backed that a few years back and stuff there's a <laughs> good thing about kickstarters are the presence to your to your future self so i thought the presence <laughs> kind of to my future self we had <laughs> we had this running joke for a while that over the space of two or three years he kept getting packages he didn't remember yeah <laughs> like, stop, so far in the, pre, in the past yeah. but like like, you know, for like 600 700 quid in some cases yeah and it was just like he'd have a stack of boxes this high just turn up with the dhl guy or something didn't you yeah it's <laughs> like uh oh shit right okay i need to stop this i've got an addiction i need to stop <laughs> speaking of future presence what um what's the stage of elden ring and when can we expect it <laughs> see well, now you have a question i don't know if we've announced the date okay <laughs> So this is how much trouble am I getting into? Oh, this absolutely is how much trouble I get into. I'm going to hold fire on that one because I can't. <laughs> the date on well, that. well, the following question is like, 
I can certainly talk to you about. What were your core oh. principles when? What, 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 what are your core principles for Elden Ring and? Um, well, Elder, Elder Ring is uh, being able to work on Elder Ring is really interesting because for a lot of people in our company, you know, uh, I, I talked earlier on about when we were able to sort of, you know, step up to the next year and start having kind of people work full time for the company. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that happened in the aftermath of the Dark Souls Kickstarter, because that was a really, really big deal for Steamforged. Um, you know, stepping into the Dark Souls world and just how successful that campaign was. And so there's a there's a niceness to coming back to you know, from software's IP again, uh, from a completely new thing. At the same time, obviously, as making Dark Souls uh, again, or making a revised version of Dark Souls, it's nice to actually come back, circle again, back to an Elden Ring, uh, to Elden Ring now. And Elden Ring's been really cool. I mean, from software actually talked to us about this a little while back. We, because uh, we're lucky enough to also be quite good friends with from software, we actually found out about it a little bit before a lot of the rest of the world had any rumblings of it. So we've been working on this for quite some time now. And so did something they, sorry, where, did they come to you before they released it to talk about a board game then? They wanted us to know they were working on something where I'll choose my words very carefully here. So we, we have friends that from software who wanted us to know, hey, we're working on something really cool, we think you will like it. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so not like a hey, come talk to us about a board game kind of thing. Right, More okay, so much, right. This is the thing we're really excited about and it'll be really cool. Yeah, we think you will like it too. Right, okay. So but um but yeah, so it's something where, um, with regards to, it, obviously it's a privilege to be able to work in that, yeah, with, with that game because it's such a massive, gorgeous, sprawling game. But at the same time, when you say about principles, um, if you're talking about the core DNA element of it, it's something where again, we sat down and was like, right, what, what's the experience of playing Elder Ring? There's so much to grab because it's such a massive game. So, what's the key thing that you want to drill into? What's the What's the thing that the first thing that happens that really draws people in? Is it running around and exploring this huge open world? Is it, you know, the intricacies of combat? It's very involved. Is it leveling up and having complete freedom to level up your tarnished character however you want to? Is it, you know, is it something where it's a combination of all those things? Uh, you know, obviously, yes. But is it the wonderment of what you're going to find across the horizon, that sort of stuff? Is it the, you know, is it the lore, which is obfuscated and it's trying to unpick all the different bits and pieces and work out what it is and obviously from there you've got a couple of questions one can't do all of it because it's massive so which one do you drill into or which ones do you drill into which ones translate best to a tabletop and give you the strongest kind of experience you know which one of those things you know is best hand- you know how do you handle those things obfuscated law is a really good one do we want to be spending a whole bunch of time teaching people about the law of Elder Ring? Probably not, because a lot of the fan base will already have done that through playing the video game. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we'll be replicating a whole bunch of stuff they already know. Do we want to replicate exploration? Yeah, we really do, because that's a massive part of the game. It's the first thing you think about it. All of the trailers you saw for the game, all of the first experience you have is literally walking out of the chapel and seeing a whole world in front of you. You know, like the tree on the horizon, seeing a castle going up into the sky. You know, you turn around, you sort of see, you know, like across these sort of sunlit uplands, which means a very different thing to people in the UK. You see kind of um, all of this grass sort of, you know, swaying in the breeze and all this other stuff. These enemies in the distance, you know, all these weird shapes flapping around like these giant bat monsters and all sorts of stuff. And you just realize, okay, I'm we are not in Kansas anymore. It's a whole different world out there. And yeah, you know, is that what we want to capture? Absolutely. Does that mean that we want we can't capture combat, you know, deep combat? No, no, we absolutely can do that as well. But it's a case of which one do you prioritize or which one is your core focus to start with 
and then do you build into the other one slowly over time or is that part of what it is or whatever else because mm. yeah, it is it is a massive game so it would yeah. it seems quite daunting to sort of you know where do you start it's it's interesting because yeah i'll definitely agree on that but once you've picked a direction you realize actually the size of that game is really cool because you've got so much to work with mm-hmm. so actually in a weird way initially daunting and then after you actually find you can ease yourself into it actually much more straightforward than you'd think which is cool I suppose there's a lot of there's a lot of um, room for expansion later on once you've sort of kind of got your main tenants and your main sort of kind of focus on the game, then you can start moving into different areas. So it's good sort of for a long term sort of um, investment, but uh, sort of a long term uh, sort of project because there is so much depth within it that you can sort of kind of go different ways. Yeah, and it's the same with. So Elden Ring is is very much a um, Elden Ring is very much a, a campaign game. You aren't just going to play as a standalone experience. As I'm talking about our tabletop game now, obviously, but it's not something where you're going to play as a standalone experience. It's true, the video game, by the way. Don't try and play it once here and you'll die. <laughs> um, <laughs> but several times over, um, video game, and then probably real life because you literally you you'll just run out of you know whatever it is that keeps you awake will just run out. Um, but anyway, the point is is that um yeah it's it's something where it's very much built as a campaign experience the whole thing is built around we can play this segment we can carry on playing or we can pause then come back to a new you know next session or whatever else and do it slowly in increments because we want to have that experience you can make decisions of where do we go next what do we do there's you know quests that carry on across the whole thing you know across the whole campaign you know in terms of you might meet a random Here's some spoilers, I guess. You might meet a random NPC, for example, and you know, let's say someone like Patches. You might meet Patches, and Patches are ah, here's a quest for you to go and do. So, okay, great, it's a side quest. We'll carry on doing our main thing, and then that side quest can sort of sit in the background, and we'll come back to that a couple of que- a couple of main quests later, and then go so fulfill that or whatever. Stuff can carry over. You could just ignore him, of course, in which case maybe you don't get you know that will trigger a different type of event later on because you didn't help him. So, lots of different stuff like that are for obviously because of it, it's it, exploration is going to be a big thing um you know in dark souls it's it it's 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 square tiles and stuff and oh. you sort of kind of in this one are you having to rethink how you sort of are is it going to be like hexes or are you going to have uh different tiles to move you into different areas how are you going to go about it hex based Hex based, yeah. Hex based Cool. yeah. Uh, which might be a spoiler for you guys, might not be. Again, depending <laughs> on what. I, I, you have to forgive me. I've written about seven or eight different blogs for our different, uh, for very different <laughs> things over the last sort of month or so, and I'm unfamiliar which ones have landed and which ones haven't. By the time this, so I mean, with something like um, the Elden Ring or Horizon or whatever, is there a point when you get you agree to go into that sort of thing from a a writer as well as a game design perspective where they give you access to like their files for all the background stuff and you just sit there and go ooh <laughs> do you know yeah i mean obviously it depends obviously what the game is and how much you have to play with uh, obviously elden ring is a brand new game uh, so from software a very kindly said hey here's a whole bunch of assets and that goes across a massive wealth of different bits and pieces and obviously we get access to things our like strategy guides and all sorts you know before they come out and stuff like that because they're a useful wealth of knowledge and other stuff yeah. like that so we're able to pick lots and pieces bits and pieces out which is really cool um yeah for some older games that's obviously not something where we haven't necessarily had that luxury but for Elden ring we have which is cool so 
is there a temptation to just get lost in that for a bit? Ring, think, oh crap, I must be working for a living. <laughs> I, I would be, I would be shocked if any one of my colleagues has not got lost in looking through files like that for games. Because ultimately, <laughs> at the end of the day, all of us are, you know, like I was talking about Resident Evil, all of us and you know, are, are geeks in some way, capacity or whatever. The amount of Elden Ring fans in the Steamforge team is insane. Like, <laughs> I think, I think there's, I've heard there's maybe someone working in marketing somewhere who hasn't played it, and they're about it. Like, literally I, everybody, I've not every, played everyone it. has played the game and loves it. So. I've resisted it. the urge to because yeah. I don't, I have to have a life somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was a World of Warcraft addict, and so games that sort of completely uh, take my life away from me, I've got this real sort of kind of like makes me feel slightly nauseous nauseated even so i'm just like i don't know if i can i can go into these games because i'll just well, get I've, lost i've seen those dark i've seen that dark place before yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I, yeah, yeah I, i'm like i'm like you but i fell off the wagon it ran me over and then i went oh this is just you know, <laughs> so I just, I understood that. yeah i i, oh, I yeah man I, I i when i was a war addict and i i was like literally to the point where i would rather be bored in the game flying around sort of stormwind and my griffin or whatever just sort of kind of like you know oh i'm gonna do this and just doing nothing than being in real life and i just had to knock it on the head because it's like yeah just yeah. it's getting too much so i've got this thing i love mmorpgs i love big long sort of games and stuff but i find myself if i if i start playing them then i'm just so zoned in that everything around me just kind of loses it so uh, i'm at uh, risk at risk of uh at risk of making you woefully tempted to to your own personal dark space i think you would love Elden ring oh but no other... no i'm sold no yeah. <laughs> okay. i'll play yeah. it for you matt don't worry no <laughs> i can't do it i can't do it i'm trying to yeah, that had, being said, I'm, try, I'm trying not to spend money and stuff at the minute so i'm just sort of like maybe i just need a game that sort of you know sort of kind of zones me in and i can't do anything else but yeah no i had that experience not with um world of warcraft but with a game called city of heroes oh yeah i know yeah that 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 was i started playing that when it was in beta in, in america then live, then beta over here, then live. And I've still got a couple of good friends. I've got a, a real life friend that's like playing with me. Another friend we made that we still stay in touch with um, from that. And um, yeah, no, that that was fine. I was single at the time. I could get away with doing that sort of thing. <laughs> I'm married now. If I started that again, I'm pretty sure that would get messy and painful in a very quick hurry. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I wasn't though when I was doing it. I wasn't. She, she actually started her own character just so she could spend time with me. <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a really sweet. It was. It was really nice, but it was just like you know, I I gave her no option because I was just like completely just like I am the game. The game is me, and I must play. Okay, that's okay. That's less. That's less sweet. Yeah, I was just like that's a bit scary. I wasn't doing that. I was just like I was completely just that was my life. I ate, drank, slept that game, and I was just like that's where I realized this is like I need to stop this because it's unhealthy. Yeah. Um. But okay. So. There's one thing I kind of want to talk to you about, and obviously you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but obviously Guild Ball was a thing that became defunct, and there was a lot of um, noise about that. Views? Opinions? Obviously, if it's something you can't talk about, then by all means... No, I, I can do. Yeah. I think... Guild Ball was, a, uh, was our first game. And it was. I'm, I'm going to echo the stuff we've already said before. To be quite honest, yeah. um, Gilball was our first game, and it was something where I think it was very much a product that was in the right place at the right time. Uh, a lot of people were coming out of other game systems for whatever reason, um, and and it was something where um, 
yeah, lots of people picked it up as a result. It got quite a buzz around it around the time we actually released it, and it was it was really interesting. And you know, I met an awful lot of friends who I still have actually from that community who grew up around it and so on. Um, but it was something where, for a number of different reasons, we weren't necessarily able to support it very well. Um, and it's also something where I think we learned a lot as a company um, going forward. Uh, smashing noises in the background. <laughs> People breaking in to come and hear about what's going on. That's um, life in the kitchen. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so um, it was something where we learned a lot with Guildhall. Uh, it was our first game. And there were some decisions which, yeah, retrospectively, we wouldn't have made. Um, because at the time, we were very much focused on delivering a certain type of experience, a certain type of focus to what the game was and so on. And yeah. Uh, the, the honest way to say it was is that I think we were never shy about saying right from the very word go. I can even very respectfully remember Matt again. I'll come back to him because I remember him saying this on a podcast. Um, I think it was an old Malifaux podcast of all things around the time, you know, way, way, way back around the time of the Kickstarter saying one thing we won't shy away from is when we think this game has run its length, as in you're just releasing new stuff for the sake of releasing it, we'll stop. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a very important thing to recognise, rather than sort of you know flogging it to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm not necessarily saying that Guildhall got there, uh, but I'm saying that Guildhall was certainly starting to get in that direction. I think is a fair statement, and I think it's something where we recognised we weren't necessarily able to support it in a way that the community wanted us to. We weren't necessarily able to. The game had grown into something which wasn't perhaps as um, strong commercially as what we wanted it to be and so on yeah you know, you know, we had other bits and pieces to sort of fo- pull our focus away onto and other stuff <laughs> it was something where you know sometimes it's better to kind of know when to hit the pause button which is exactly what we did now in terms of communication other bits and pieces i mean again that's that's a whole property podcast with itself in terms of how that how the community reacted to that and you know how we communicated that information to them and so on and you know i have zero level of yeah, the zero level of any judgment or anything from me on that one it is um, something where, to be put, that's that's what it was. That's that's the honest thing of, of what Gilball was and why that paused. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, right. So uh, before we, we end, uh, we always sort of end our podcast with a, uh, a sort of kind of short sort of like pop quiz now it's a, a little game that we um borrowed from a uh, uh some inspired uh, by it's inspired by um uh, from a, a wrestling podcast but um a wrestling we, podcast yeah but okay. we, we I could, I, if they're wrestling questions i could probably do reasonably well uh, but we don't do wrestling <laughs> though we can do wrestling if you want to do wrestling so basically the way we do it, our slant on it is like so they're, they're one they're called the straight ship podcast we've had uh Zanthi on this um on this podcast but they basically do it where they name a wrestler and you've got 60 seconds to try uh sorry they think of they a wrestler, decide on a wrestler you've got to sort of guess who it is Ours is you pick a nerdy franchise. It can be like Star Wars, it can be somebody within gaming, whatever you want. And we have you tell them what it is. So you say Marvel, and you've got sixty seconds to guess um, what that character is. Um, so what we need you to do is think of one of your favorite franchises within nerd culture. It can be games, can be uh, film, it can be TV, books, whatever, sort of nerdy sort of franchise. Think of a character or a person and then tell us what the franchise is and then we have 60 seconds to guess who that person is. 
Do I have to give you clues? Uh, so we'll, ask, you... we'll ask you questions. So it's like it's like twenty questions. We'll ask you questions. You know. So we'll we'll, we'll go through one. So Pete, you've always got one. Give us give us an example. Okay. Um, see two seconds. Go. Wait, Star Wars. So Star Wars. Bear with me. Let me uh, get my oh. stop. Let me get my my stopwatch out. You're just not ready at all. <laughs> I'm not ready at all. He uh, has his moments. I have my moments. Yeah, yeah, I can be a bit uh, haphazard now and again. Um, where the... F- oh, there it is. There you go. Stopwatch. So, 60 seconds. Star Wars. Go. Okay, original trilogy? Yep. Uh, Rebel? Yep. Rebel, did you say? Yes. yes. So, original trilogy, Rebel... Um, yep. Are they in? Um, are they in the New Hope? Yep. Under are they it. in all three of the films? Yep. Male or female? Neither. Okay. Are are they a droid? <laughs> yep. Okay. Is R two? Yeah. God, we've done that before, man. We've done R2. Well, I've got, this is a demo. Wow. Okay. All right. R2's there. Yeah, okay. so you get the you get the idea. So it's just uh something... so, so how deep is your lore on any of the games that we've talked about? <laughs> that we made? Uh, okay. Or is this no, something where I'm gonna tell you? I know Resident so, Evil. You know Resident Evil. Um I've watched the films by the last one, skipped the T V series because it looked a bit meh. But yeah, and I've been playing okay. the games up until Resident Evil so I, I, 3. Okay, I don't necessarily want to give you guys one where you're like, uh, we know nothing about this, and it's just literally... Well, it's one of us will do. Like, I, I, I'm sort of like, yeah. I, I know bits and pieces and stuff. So. Yeah, I know. I know it's on sods, but I'm not deep into it, so yeah. I can try and... I, I know Resident you. Evil. All right, we'll shoot for that then, soon as you kind Excellent. of know it. So, okay. We'll go Resident Evil. Okay, um, so... Think of a character. Okay, good. Okay. All right, so Resident Evil... 60 or oh, okay uh are we talking uh games are we talking film by the way i wasn't aware there were any resident evil films we'll go with that okay resident evil 60 seconds go are they in the first game yes are they only in the first game no are they in resident evil 4 no oh are oh. they um part of stars? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Chris Redfield? No. Wesker? No. Okay. He's in Resident Evil 4. Oh yes he is. Ah. Um Claire is Redfield? No. No. Oh, is it male or female? Female. Jill Valentine. Yes. Ah, <laughs> very good. Jill Sandwich. 40, 44 seconds. Go. Very good. All right. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, Mark, give us one. What do you got? What do you got for us? Am I going to be cruel or not? Please don't be too cruel because oh, Pete, I was, I was Pete, Pete keeps on giving us some really obscure comic book ones and stuff, and I'm just like, I'm not going to be able to What's going on? I'm also um, more obscure United Marvel comics, so yeah, it's just, let me it. If I name the subject and, 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 two, and, and, and both of you, not Pete, goes, oh God, then I'll do a different one. So, uh, Babylon 5. I'm in. <sighs> yeah, I'm totally in for this. All right, okay, you Sorry, guys. Matt. All right, fine. <laughs> All right. Babylon 5, 60 seconds. Go. Uh, male or female? Do, do they... Go on, go with that. Male? Do they appear in all five seasons? 
Yes. Are they part of the Army of Light? Yes. Okay. Are they human? Yes. Is it Are Garibaldi? They... No. Are they Air Force? Yes. Okay. Um, can we ask non yes or no questions? You can make statements and then you can. Yeah. Okay. Are the, um, are the doctor? Yes. Dr. Stephen Franklin. Franklin. <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> Very good. 50 seconds. All right. All right. Everyone always assumes Garibaldi, Ivanova, Sheridan, Sinclair. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> I fallen into that trap because people should know more people should know about Mr. Garibaldi. <laughs> I do like Mr. Garibaldi. What are we going to do with Mr. Garibaldi, eh? Right, so what am I gonna go for? What have we not done in a while? What have we not done? Skew in nineties Marvel comics. No, we're not gonna do comics. We're gonna do... all right, okay. Um We are going to do Are we gonna go for Star Trek? We come a lot. We do a lot of Star Wars and we do a lot of Marvel. Are we going to go for Star Trek? Um, we are going to go for. Okay, right, yeah, Star Trek. Sixty seconds. Go. Is it next gen? It is next gen. Yes. Are we talking TV series or films? TV series. Are they seven series? That again. Do your one first. All seven series? No. Are they in Starfleet? They're not in Starfleet. Are they an alien? They are not an alien. So they, they are human then? Ish. Android? No. Is it Wisdy Crusher? No. <laughs> Human-ish? <laughs> By Kurt's beard? <laughs> no. Okay, just checking. Simon Tarsis. No. Male or female? Male. Oh. Are they a hologram? Yes. Is it the Doctor? Nope. No, I know. I know. Moriarty. Oh, Pete Bum! <laughs> oh, brilliant! Yes, it was. It <laughs> well was Moriarty. Yeah. Because, I was like, course, I'm fully going to get them in this one because they're not going to go for that and stuff. But yeah, it was Moriarty. Very good. Well done. Yeah. Funny enough, I watched that episode recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very and we've good. got Picard series three coming soon with more Moriarty. <laughs> really? Is he going to be in yeah. it? Yeah. Have right. you not seen the trailer? No, I'm not seen the trailer yet. All That's right. quite cool. Watch the latest trailer. Oh, brilliant. Amazing. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. Um, Sherwin, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. I honestly feel like we could talk for ages about sort of gaming and stuff like that. Um, I'll have to get you on again just to sort of for general gaming chit chat and stuff. Yeah, that'd be point. cool. Yeah, because... Uh, to be fair, you know, I didn't even get a chance to ask about Animal Adventures. <laughs> oh, we can quickly do it. You've got 60 seconds. Go. Tell me about Animal Adventures. What do you want to know? Um, I just wanted to know how you guys came about it. I love the minis. I haven't really played the background of it. Uh, Animal Adventures was a fun side project that Matt and Russ, uh, so Russ Charles, our lead sculptor, and uh, Matt, our creative director, uh, came up with. Uh, it originally came because Russ's group, he's a big D&D player, uh, wanted to play as one of his, their dogs. Uh, so Russ, <laughs> being a sculptor, kind of you know made this thing out of nowhere. 
and then started taking some pictures of it and put it on Twitter because he thought it was fun. Uh, and loads of people loved it to the point where I actually started asking for their own ones to the point where there was a Kickstarter <laughs> called Dungeon and Doggies. Um, and then at that point, uh, it kind of exploded up from there, really, because and then, who knew? Cats and Catacombs. Cats and Catacombs. Yeah. We haven't yet made Mortal Wombat, but we should do it. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's that amazing. amazing! Absolutely, right? so absolutely. So at some point we'll get there. Oh, that's amazing! Oh, wow. But they are absolutely stunning minis, and in fact, you wrote the the backgrounds around it. it was very cool as well. Yeah, there's really it's it's. I always describe it to people as. I mean, I I can't take credit there. That's part of our RPG team. So some wonderful yeah. talented writers there, but. Um, I always say it's it's a really nice game to play with. Like if you're you've got a younger like kids playing for the first time or whatever else, that's really cool. I also say it's quite nice and sort of gentle because so much so much RP, so many RPGs go to like a grim dark place or go to a really grimy kind of oh life and death kind of thing. Whereas there's loads of quite genuinely heartwarming stuff in Animal Adventures, like yeah, the Order of the Golden Collar, where the paladins just want to be good boys and stuff like that. Or sort of <laughs> it's quite nice. So. I've yeah. got I've got a friend Sam and I did sort of another sort of kind of gaming podcast and um he was banging on about that he was banging on about um that and I was just like wow it's just it sounds absolutely insane but yeah I love it it's really cool yeah that's why I was trying to trying to argue that if I die I want my my, my character to come back as like a cat rogue or something and oh. just steal from Animal Adventures. <laughs> There you go. Well, maybe you you can come back as the Mortal Wombat. Mortal <laughs> Wombat. I love it. I love it. Brilliant. Yeah. So again, man, I really appreciate your time. It's been really insightful. Uh, very interesting. I feel like you know when p- people talk board games with me, I could talk forever. So it's just like you know, you know, I have to put a stop to it somewhere. Um, but yeah, I appreciate your time. Um, so uh, Dark Souls, uh, the new core sets are coming out early November. Yep, early November. Uh, they're available for pre-order now. Uh, they are Team of Giants and Painted Worlds. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, for me, I've been Matt Gary. With me tonight has been Peter Ray Allison. Good night, everyone. Mark Canty. Be seeing you. And Sherwin Matthews. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.